Hey guys, welcome to the Faisal and Film Podcast. My name is Faisal Hashmi and uh, it's been a while since I've put out an episode and I'll give you a reason why. It's because uh, I've been shooting a new short film of mine which is something I haven't done in a long time. So this new short film um, that I shot over the summer, it's called Skipped. It's a science fiction comedy and uh, I had a blast shooting it with a very talented cast and crew. Uh, Canon Middle East was attached and um, uh, you know I shot it on the Canon C200 camera which is a lot of fun and uh, it's just a fun little quirky idea that I had and you know wh- while things are kind of quieter in the summer I just wanted to be productive and be creative and get something out there so uh, so the film was pretty much consuming all of my time in the summer and I was focusing on just getting the best version of that out and um, it it had some local screenings in the UAE it has played um, uh, at Canon events and at some other smaller screening festivals and also it's been selected for uh, some really international uh, film festivals uh, in the US actually is playing next week so it's a lot of fun and the best part is it's actually online because i was really adamant on putting something online i haven't put something online very in a long time so um, if you want to check the movie out it's on my youtube channel uh, hashmikos films youtube channel and i'm going to put it in the description of this um, of this episode So moving on to this episode, uh I have an interesting guest for you this time. It's um a man called Jack Mulder. He is a filmmaker, a commercial director. He's very popular in the UAE. Anybody who works in the industry here really knows who he is. Um but what's what makes him more interesting is that he's made two feature films kind of outside the system. You would think that when you're making a feature film here, you have to be a part of some of the Emirati initiatives or, you know, have funding even from some of the more common bodies that you would think of, but that's actually not the case at all. The first feature film that he ended up making is called Bordering on Bad Behavior. This was a movie shot entirely in South Africa. He um uh, he was able to just find private investors to fund the movie and was able to do it pretty much almost entirely on his own in that regard and uh was ma- managed to get actors like Tom Sizemore who's a pretty big Hollywood actor onto his first feature film and it's a very very interesting if controversial movie uh that uh, definitely is something unique and then just a couple of months ago he shot his second feature film called Twisted Blues it's a MMA fight drama uh but that was the interesting thing is that one was shot entirely in dubai so two very different genres one is a war com- satire comedy one is a uh, mma fight drama one shot in south africa and one shot completely in dubai so he's a filmmaker who's been doing interesting things called almost outside the system and uh, it's it's a really interesting conversation to kind of hear where he comes from what his background was now he's a man with a lot of strong opinions whether you agree or disagree with them uh, you have to admit that you know making a feature film in this region or in general is is so hard for a, so for a man who's uh able to get money together to make not just one but two feature films it's kind of insane um it's and it's definitely commendable that he was able to do that so sit back and i uh, hope you guys have a good time listening to uh what jack had to say and i'll see you on the other side all right so i'm here with uh, jack mulder uh jack the first time i got to know uh about you was because of this program way early in the day called Aflam Kasira which is this initiative of like f- a couple of filmmakers getting uh, you know a certain amount of money to make a short film that they wanted to and i was like just looking at uh, the people who uh, you know participated and i just saw arab filmmakers and i was like i finally i saw like somebody who was not arab I was like okay, cool there's a chance that people like me could also be involved so that was how i knew got to know about you so yeah i'm glad to have you on the tof show finally and um, so i just wanted to ask you from right at the beginning like what is the one thing or the one moment that you have that you remember where you were like i want to be a filmmaker was it a film movie that you saw was it something in your childhood or 
Um, no, I was very much involved in animation, visual effects, broadcast design. I was very much involved with uh, making stories for commercials. I wasn't really interested in writing stories or coming up with concepts. Um, my journey basically was always on film set with other bigger directors and always watching what they did and created. So as a result, I ended up getting a bit inspired by that. So by the time I was 21, 22, I felt that you know directing was a fun thing to do, but I was miles away from knowing what to do with that. Yeah, but when you were growing up, were there certain filmmakers that you really like? Were you into film, or you were certain certain films that you really enjoyed that you were like, oh cool, like I want to maybe do that someday or something? No, it was more like things like Industrial Light and Magic and Digital Domain, where they would uh, do visual effects for big movies, like right. The Fifth Element. Like that one really inspired me, but it never inspired me to be the director. It inspired me to be the visual effects technical director. So that became its own sort of beast for me. So I liked the idea of learning how to create a scene or a world that wasn't real. But that came with its own set of concerns, uh, making actors act in an environment where they couldn't envision what was going on. You had to pretend and direct them in a way that they could understand what was happening around them. So worlds, um, places, cars, environments, things collapsing, colliding. So that was, for me, was very fun because I got to learn how to direct somebody um, put something in their mind or their imagination and then take them from there. So when you, did you ever like meddle with animation and like making an animated short film or something and you, since you were interested in that? I did tons. I did a lot of commercials, animated characters. I built them in 3D. I was, I nice. was very much the 3D animator. How old were you when you started doing that kind of stuff? I was 19. Wow, okay. Yeah, cool. so 19. I would, ended up in LA um, for a long time and... Um, I worked on the Pillsbury Doughboy and worked with uh, Cindy Crawford and it was just, it was fun. It was nice for me. I enjoyed it because it was very technical and there were very few people that could do it at the time. So um, we were like a group of people that were sort of headhunted all the time and moved around from film set to shoots and it was nice. It was good fun. Nice. So how long, so, so you, you moved to, uh, from South Africa to LA when you were, when you were 19? Yeah, 19 or 20. 19, yes. okay. And how long did you stay in, in LA? Oh, close on a year, I think. Okay. But I didn't like America. I oh, really? I didn't okay. enjoy it there. I was just, it was not, it wasn't my place. It wasn't my, I couldn't see myself staying a long time. Okay. So you, so since you started from a commercial side of, side of things, what made you kind of gravitate more towards filmmaking after that point? I always had it in me to tell good stories, I think. Um, I like to think that, you know, being a good storyteller means that you're like on this level of creativity that, um, you know, you can draw some kind of inspiration from. Uh, I always felt that if you can tell a story and get a person totally engaged and they can almost picture what was happening, that meant that you were heading in the right direction to be able to communicate with people. And as a result, I ended up um, enjoying telling little stories to people. And I like kind of um, spent, I don't know how long, um, five, ten years just coming up with ideas and concepts and executions yeah. and just seeing the responses of people. I didn't really actually think that I was going to be a scriptwriter or a screenwriter. In fact, I failed English in high school. So um, now on my 14th or 15th screenplay. Wow, okay. So you started off as a writer. That was the one thing that you wanted to do, is like just kind of tell stories in the beginning. No, I didn't even like writing. I, mean, <laughs> okay. the, I had one skill set that I was very proud of as a kid. I could type without looking at the keyboard. So as fast as my mind could imagine, my hands could type. So it was, it was kind of a beneficial skill set to have, being able to articulate a story and visually keep up with it as it's unfolding in your mind. So yeah. I think my first film, it was 156 pages. I wrote it in like 18 days. 
That's insane. That's that's really fast for a lot of for a lot of people like that because like somebody like me, it, I take a while kind of going back and changing stuff and like I'm always like self-critical of the things. But yeah, I'm always. Yeah, like I never movie. actually read my first screenplay. I, oh, I think yeah, for oh, the first just, four years, I never read it. I really? Like, it was just everybody read it and was so happy about it and impressed by it. Nice. But it was always about the story that I wanted to tell. I always had a. Um, I didn't like the misconception that people had towards the Middle East. So um, it always became very relevant for me when somebody made a film that made the Arab world look bad. Right. And um, from my experience in travels, um, I always sat in an environment where people would always say bad things about you know, the Arab world. And I yeah. would always defend it. And you know, I figured, well, here's an, here an outlet where I can create a film. I can bridge East and West. I can you know, like meander through a concept and then hopefully with a little bit of luck, five or 10% of the people that I show the film to would change a perception in some way. And that was, for me, was the most important thing. Yeah. Okay. So after LA, when, where did you move to then? I think I'm on my 97th country, but not living. I mean, I've traveled the world. I've been everywhere except for South America and Russia. Those are the only two places I haven't been <laughs> oh, that's to. Interesting. I mean, I've like everywhere on the planet. I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed life. I've had a great time, but... I, I'm stuck here not because I want to be. I actually really enjoy it. And you know. So when did you come Dubai. to Dubai then? At that. Gosh, 17 years ago. 17 years ago. Okay. Mm. What was it? So what was the reasoning behind Dubai? Like why Dubai from LA? Well, actually, I was working in Saudi Arabia with for the royal family, and then I got offered a job here in Dubai, and I worked with Tim Smythe before he passed away. Right. I worked with him for about six or seven years. And um, we got to do Syriana, and he did The Kingdom, and I got to watch that and then the excitement behind making that. But I always worked with commercial directors, not feature film directors. And then as a result, um, the years went on, and I kind of, I kind of liked the idea of actually changing the perception here. Hmm. So as a result, I uh, wrote a film. It was called Oceans Apart. It was so naive. It was just... It was a cute little story, but you know, even looking back at it now, it's, it's relevant, even till today which made it worthwhile actually telling because um, at the end of the day, we're all just humans, we're all just people and we all have very similar interests. You yeah. know, you'll notice that we're, we're influenced by the States, by Europe, by even Asia. You know, yeah. we're all influenced by it. That's cool. So when you, when you came here and you were working with Tim Smite, what were, you doing, what were you working as in what capacity? I was a technical director, visual effects supervisor, creative as well. I would design, I would uh, go to pitches, I would present storyboards. I... Um, I got to learn a lot about the Middle East through you know, developing concepts and ideas. I got to see um, the industry grow from nothing. There was like no agencies here. Yeah, because 17 years ago, that's a, that's a long time. So how was... How, like, was, was it, obviously, it was nothing like the way it, it is now. There was no competition, and I think the creativity was more inspiring. It's, sure. Nowadays, it feels like there's a lot of plagiarism, and everyone's copying other ideas. So the agency world has become a little bit more tricky, um, you know, when there's a great idea, then I'll jump on board. Sometimes when I see a concept, I say, mm, sorry, no, thank you. Yeah. But it's, it's because, you know, we all have the potential of being greater than what we are. So, you know, come up with better ideas and be more creative and like be more interesting, you know. Yeah. So after, so, so when you were in Dubai and you were working as a technical director, what, at what point did you decide to, you know, meddle or make your own short, short film? Actually, I didn't even start with short films. I wasn't interested in them at all. In fact, I didn't even want to make my first one. But um, in order for somebody to take me seriously, a wise yeah. man once said to me, you have to have the package. Yeah. I didn't really understand what that meant. And I spent, I don't know, 
five years, ten years, trying to understand what the package was. And even if I made my first film, I didn't have the package. And when I made my second short story, I still didn't have it. When I made my first feature film and I delivered it, I finally realized what the package was. It's not some physical box that you can hold. It's a matter of the credibility. Uh, as a director, the most interesting thing that I've got to discover in the Middle East is that um, occasionally you'll meet somebody and they'll just finish you know, university and they'll say... You know, like, like next week, I'm going, to, um, I'm going to be a director. And it's like, no, you cannot just be a director. It's like, it's 10, 15, 20 years of preparation. It is mind-numbing exercises of creativity and convincing people. And, and I think that one of my most valuable lessons was when I was about 25 or 26. I sat with a line producer who had done feature films with Val Kilmer and Morgan Freeman. And he said to me, the only way to become a good director is this. And I was like, so excited. He said, you have to be able to do everybody's job better than them. So I thought that was ridiculous. Could you imagine? I mean, sometimes my film sets have 128 people on them, you know, from actors to stunts to coordinators, special effects. I mean, I've blown up whole city streets. It's been exciting. But when um, when I had to learn that lesson, that was the hardest. So I systematically went through everybody's job. I learned how to operate a camera. Uh, I studied online. I went to classes. I worked with the best DOPs I could actually hire to be on my film sets. I got to learn from them. Uh, focus pullers. I got to learn how to do focus. I got to learn how to do like sound. I got to do everything that I could possibly learn. I could learn how to do it. My levels, my inputs, my everything, my color temperatures. My I learned everything. Eventually, I got so far into it and so excited by it that I learned how to do hair and makeup. <laughs> And the irony was, like, I would walk onto set and the DOP would stand up, yes, sir, what would you like, and put the 65 mole over there on a track over here, put it over there, da-da-da, let's start with a 65 and we'll get that shot, put the light there, 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 there. Because in order to be a good director, you need to be able to direct people. And it's not necessarily that you have to be an alpha male to be able to be a director. You have to be compassionate. And I think that there is a lot of people out there that are a little bit impatient and aggressive, and you'll find that you cannot often control how angry or frustrated you can get on a set when your vision's not coming through. Yeah. But you can sort of work your way through it. Yeah. So in learning what everybody else does, you can have sympathy towards them. So if they're running late or if they're making a problem or there's something that hasn't arrived, you have to also be able to work around those problems. Yeah. And the most important thing about a... Um, and directors being able to problem solve in a moment's notice. Yeah. I mean, on my last feature film, there were things that were happening that were just totally out of my control, even my wardrobe or my makeup or whatever it might be. And, you know, I, I climbed in and helped them do the makeup, do the special effects makeup, just push blood everywhere, dress up the actors, make sure they look good. Because I'm not more special than that person who specialized in that field. I'm yeah. actually there to make sure that their job is easier. Yeah. And it's quicker and give them the time that they need. I, um, I can never understand why you have to do 17, 18, 20 takes on one shot in order just to satisfy your insecurities of whether you get it right or not. Yeah. I mean, I've had film sets where I've calculated the accurate amount of number of film stock that I would need and then shoot it and still come one stock short. And I'm happy, you know, and people are always surprised because I know what I want to know how to get to it. So just come very well prepared Think about what you're doing and support your crew around you. And that's the most important thing. Yeah. It's not easy. Yeah. I'm not going to lie to you. It's, um, 
it's one of the most difficult things in the world to be able to regulate so many people, especially if they're from different parts of the world, different countries, different nationalities, different cultures. It's, it's tricky. I mean, could you imagine shooting a feature film in Ramadan? It's uh, yeah. not interesting, not, yeah. not difficult, not easy to do. It's, uh, yeah. it's an interesting process too. So yeah, that's, okay. being a director is, I think somebody asked me recently, what's, it, what's, <laughs> what's the most interesting thing about being a director? And I said, you get to learn how to change 128 diapers a day. <laughs> and that's the hardest part of being a director. Yeah. No, I completely agree. The fact that you can, you know, that, that you did all those jobs, like you could speak their language at, at that point. You know, you, you understood like sound, for example. So you could, that I think really helps you speak to the sound mixer of a movie or like the, the makeup person because you'd be like, I understand what their world is, you know, instead of just like telling them, I need, like giving them a vague direction, be like, I need something like this, figure it out. You know, you can kind of be more specific because you, you know color temperature and all those, all those things. So I think it really helps also. Well, I mean, can you imagine you walk on set and you walk up to the makeup artist and say, look, her face is a little round. Can we do like a diamond configuration on, on her? Um on her face and then you can say but give me some like highlights here da, 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 da. and then yeah. they're like always they're shocked when they yeah. hear this especially if somebody you don't know how, that hasn't worked with you yeah so it always it's always a good thing to do because you know you always want to have that level of respect yeah and, the, the and, the, and I think they're pleasantly surprised like oh this guy knows you know a little bit of my world and like he's giving me a specific direction of what to what to do instead of just like figure something out yeah I mean like when you walk on set you can be shooting in half an hour 45 minutes as opposed to three hours before the first take that's just unacceptable you're wasting three hours of your day yeah. it's like when you can actually start to understand that every single minute of the day actually is accountable for a dollar or a dirham or $10 or yeah. $20, it actually starts to make a lot of sense because you don't want to be wasting money on set. Yeah, time is literally money on set. <laughs> right. And it's very rare that I actually go over time on my, my timelines. I mean, most of the film crew here know that I walk in, I, we leave early. And it's because I have a clear vision of what I need. I know how to get to it. And if there's somebody struggling along the way, then I can always help them if I have to. Nice. And so obviously you learned how to edit also. Yeah, I hate editing. <laughs> yeah, editing I think yeah. it's laborious, exhausting, and lonely. I think it's one of the most uh, yeah, loneliest experiences of my life. I That's don't, true. I don't it enjoy it. Thing, yeah. But the only thing is that the only person that I trust as an editor is technically myself. Yeah, there very here. rarely do I meet an editor that actually blows me away and, and um, really makes what I've put together you know, interesting. And mm -hmm. I like it when the, you find a creative editor and she can or he can just manipulate the scenes and show you a different perspective. And like, oh, I like the way you configure that. Yeah. So it's very rare, but it's, you know, I have worked with people like that in the past and I like them still. Yeah. So, um, so what was your first short film then? Like when you actually made your, was it, was it the Aflam Casita one? Was that your first proper like live action short film? That was my short film. Yes. My first one. Wow. So how was the experience uh, shooting your first live action shot? I mean, we were limited by days, time. We were limited by budget. We were limited by um, expertise. It was so long ago. You know, the film crew was, the film industry was still growing. We weren't really, like, efficient yet. Um, it, was, uh, it, was a, it was a tough one, but I also tackled one of the most complicated subject matters, comedy. Right, yeah. So what comedy. was the movie about for people who, are, who didn't... Comedy, it was about a young man who stumbles upon a, he has the worst luck in the world, he stumbles upon a, a genie that's been left behind right. like 17,000 years on the, on the planet still, and he's like, and he still doesn't want to go back into his little lamp. And um, you can see this guy struggling with life, and he says to him, look, I'll give you wishes. So, um, and all the wishes that he chooses, or the, 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 the things that he wants to do, he always chose something that was good. So he wanted to help somebody, or he wanted to rob a bank but give the money to the person that needed it the most. Like he never actually kept any of the wishes for himself. He always helped other people. And then in the end, when 
you know, things go horribly wrong in time travel. Um, and it was hard to shoot that because it was a very technical scene. Um, he gets killed and the genie <laughs> saves him. <clears throat> so when he gets in his little injury, his little, uh, he wakes up in a coffee shop and the genie is like super surprised and so impressed. And obviously it's the first time in his life, you know, that somebody's actually done good with the wishes he got instead yeah. of being so selfish and wanting like, you know, big house, you know, and yeah. blah, blah, blah. And then um, it results in a nice little twist in the end, which makes it even, I think, a sweeter ending. And um, using the comedy to keep the audience engaged, using the comedy to, um, you know, keep them watching and smiling and giggling was ultimately my goal. So when I made my actual first feature film, it was riddled with humor and comedy. And, um, you know, I mean, I remember like, when I was staying there at the film festivals in like Chicago, for instance, like I was like, I loved how people laughed. And yeah. they laughed so loud that you couldn't hear the audio anymore. And it didn't matter. They didn't feeling, care. Yeah. It was the ama most amazing feeling. Yeah. So when, so you said you, you did a comedy. So how are the actors? Was it easy to find actors? Because like when you're doing comedy, you need somebody with like com comic timing necessarily. So when you, were, when you were making the movie, did you find the right actors that you're looking for uh, easily? Yeah, they're actors. They're actors in the country. They try. And um, a lot of times you have to spend a lot of effort in getting them to the right place. You can tell within the first two, three minutes if the person's going to work or not. Right. Um, if you cannot, then you need to figure out for the next two or three minutes how to fix them so that they can help you. Otherwise, you're just wasting their time and yours. Um, you never want to make the wrong decision about an actor or you never want to be pressured into being in a place where you cannot decide whether your actor is good enough or not. Mm. So um, you have to be dead certain about that. And when a person reads a role, if they don't come prepared, then you just, in, you just you know that for a fact they're not going to be the right person. Like An example would be I was casting for an Australian um, army citizen and I went through 50 people in a film set you know, and they're like casting room and they came in and they came in but they all were South African and they all had South African accents right. and they'd all pretend to be Australian and then one day <laughs> this guy just walks in and I think it was my third day I was sitting in that casting room and he walks in and he rattles off in some you know, really thick Australian accents to the, uh, when they were signing in and then he comes in front of me and he's still continuing in, um, in like this Australian accent and we started chatting and I said, oh my God, you have no idea what a relief it is to have a real Australian. And he goes, no, buddy, I, I'm not. But because he came so well prepared and willing to be so ver well versed with the accent, he yeah. actually, even signing in, he spoke in that accent. And it was just such a breath of fresh air because you can see he was committed. Yeah. I mean, I've casted people that were so nervous and freaked out that they even walked through a glass door because they were panicking so much. Yeah. And I've cast them because they made me laugh. Yeah. But because I can laugh at them in a positive way, they start to trust me a little quicker. So when somebody can trust you and they, they can get over the inhibitions of being so unbelievably like caught up in, oh my God, I'm acting, you know, it's different. I mean, I've, I've cast kids that are nine months old and I've got them to laugh before their parents even got them to laugh. They've never seen a kid laugh and I've got them to giggle out, you know, enormously. It's about the relationship that you have with an actor. Yeah. And the thing is about the actors in town, bless them. I mean, they should keep trying. They should keep, they should keep going. Um, I really recommend going seeking outside help. Um, any casting directors in the States or Europe, whatever it is, they, they're really good. Um, I've actually been taught by Tom Todorov as um, 
he's a casting director. I think he did Harrison Ford and some really famous people. But when I went to that, that lesson, I didn't go there to go and learn how to act because obviously I don't really care to be an actor, but I need to appreciate how they yeah. learn in the process. So for the week that I was there, I sat in the audience on a chair and, and Tom Tadarf actually said to me, what are you doing? Why aren't you not coming up on stage and participating? And I said, I'm not here to learn how to be an actor. I'm learning how you teach them how to be an actor. And he was like profoundly surprised. And he goes, you're like the first person I've ever met that's done that. <laughs> and he goes, like, you have my utmost respect. Mm-hmm. And I said, I cannot teach somebody how to be a, an actor unless I know how you do it. And yeah. you seem to be good at it. Yeah, awesome. So when you made a short film, did it end up being, uh, you know, helpful to you, like in terms of credibility, as you were saying, like, did it open more doors to you when, you, when, the, when the short film was ready? No, not at all. Really? No, <laughs> no, not at all. Um, the, the journey of a, being a director is an arduous one. You cannot be naive into thinking that you make one short film and suddenly you're going to be like a Hollywood yeah. director. It's impossible. It is the loneliest journey on the planet. You yeah. spend your life convincing people of believing in a vision that you have. And then if you don't have the credibility or the package, like I said before, you're going to go nowhere. No one's yeah. even going to be interested in investing in you in any way, shape or form. Yeah. The, the question is, you need to ask yourself is, how do you convince somebody with a lot of money how to give you money? That is the, <laughs> the hard part. Yeah. And that takes about 15 years of practice. Oh. I know because I went to 50 investors, 100 investors, I don't know, so many. And they all laughed me out the room. Yeah. Maybe a quarter of them said, yes, they're interested. And when it finally came to the point where, give me the money. That's when cool feet happen. They yeah. go, who are you? Yeah. And it's, it is, it is soul destroying. Yeah. And I, and I use that word like genuinely. If you, if like, if you're fortunate enough to become from money and you can just throw cash at it, then fine. Keep trying, keep practicing, you know, refining your art. But if you're going to go and stand in front of an investor and beg them for cash, yeah. And you've never really done something successful or made the money, then you need to think about how you want to approach that. Because mm-hmm. I've raised money for feature films twice now, and I've managed to do it both times in under 15 minutes. So oh. you need to know how to do that. Yeah. And that is something that you cannot be taught. Yeah, it's something it's you have experience. to learn. Tell me how your first feature film came about because I watched Warning of Bad Behavior on uh, on Amazon Prime. I really enjoyed the movie actually. I just watched it a couple of days ago. So I just want to know like how, how did you get involved with that? How did that come about? Um, it was quite nice. It was a nice. It's a nice story. Uh, there was a man that I met, Siggy, and um, he came to me with this story um, initially with this golf story, and I laughed him out of the room. I said, "Look, you just plagiarized this and this and this," but it seemed to inspire him to write another one. And um, three or four months later, he comes to me, and as the luck would have it, I managed to read the script. And I laughed through it. I did. I enjoyed it. I liked his outlook on the whole thing, and I liked his perception. Yeah. There were some things that obviously were wrong, so we literally went through months of like correcting it, fixing it, tweaking it. I made a lot of choices and decisions to the course of the shoot and how to make it more interesting. And you know, as my first time feature film, it was quite quite challenging you know I mean I even remember they interviewed Tom Sizemore who you know from Black Hawk Down and yeah, Seven yeah, yeah. he's a big actor they interviewed him afterwards and they said to him what was it like working with Jack on his first time feature film and he was genuinely shocked he goes that was his first film and he actually said I remember he said I've never seen a more prepared director yeah. and that for me was one of the most beautiful compliments I could ever receive because yeah. I was shit scared excuse my language but I was yeah. petrified I was really 
Every day I had six different variations of blocking. Every day I would like second guess every decision I'd made. But I never let anybody see it. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I think must, that's important. Is like you, at least you I should come must, off. Yes, I must. Every fear that I had, I walked in confidently. And even on the days that there were that things went bad and wrong, it didn't matter because um, somehow the team that supported me would would help me, and yeah. they would get me through it. And even though I didn't panic or freak out, I pulled it off, and I yeah. shot it in a record time, like 19 days. Wow. Okay. I had a two and a half hour assemble. Um, I think one day I pushed my actors to 11 pages in one day. And um, yeah, so it was... So for people who don't know, the, the movie is about an, uh, an Arab, an Israeli, <coughs> and an American soldier who are stuck in a bunker together. And they're kind of forced to uh, kind of tackle their different perceptions of each other. And it's, but it's done through a very comedic and really fun uh, style of that, movie. That's, a, that's another way of looking at it. But yeah. you must remember that, like, imagine me as a, as a Westerner that lives here. Yeah. Okay? I get to watch BBC, CNN. I get to watch Al Jazeera. I get to watch the media, the news. But you know what? It's like I wanted to, like I said, humanize the characters. I wanted to make a person watch a story and appreciate who they are and what their backstory is. So try and articulate a character through the words. And most importantly, I wanted to show the film through a non-news lens because the message in the film is quite simple. And it actually, I fought for this message. Why can't we all just get along? Yeah. And you know what? It's like your grandfather's 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 issue. And I know it might be naive for me, but I come from a very racist country. I'm from South Africa. <laughs> you know, we branded as racist. And, you know, we grew up in schools and our friends were from all over the planet. And... We didn't grow up that way. It was our parents' parents that were, that were like that yeah. way. So, and even though if I go to America, like you say, oh, I'm from South Africa, <gasps> yeah. but you're not black. And it's, it's still, after all this time, it's still nothing's changed. Yeah. And it's like, okay, but then why is nobody making an effort to change their perception? But then when I came here and fell in love with the Middle East, it was like, well, and I have a purpose. So when you uh, so the movie was shot in South Africa, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. That and Lebanon, I sh I shot some scenes okay. in Lebanon, but that was just by myself. Was there ever a conversation that to, to shoot it in UAE, or was that, was that ever something that you were contemplating? It was yeah. supposed to be shot in the UAE. Yeah. Um, the reason why it wasn't done, I mean, in fact, it would have been cheaper for us to shoot it here. Yeah. Um, the reasons were like beyond my control, and unfortunately, being a, being the nature of a director. Um, and in charge of a baby and raising the money it's quite a you know you become very protective over it and when somebody like wants to change the script it's, yeah. it becomes like but why are you qualified to change my script so you you've done script writing courses and you, what you've done Hollywood feature films so when when they can't give me that satisfaction back I start to question the reason why I should make it here right. so in theory I will always listen to somebody who is a veteran or who's produced films or, you know, who's experienced or whatever it might be. But I'll never, ever step back into a position where I need to be put into fear. And, you know, like, and even when we finished it, like the, the level of pain we went through to show it in this country, I mean, I think we went through 11 rounds of like approvals. And it was heartbreaking because, you know, I made the Arab look good. I, I made the, the Israeli look like who he is, and I made the Arab look like the American look like a puppet. Yeah, you know, and it's like I'm I'm doing the right thing, you know, and like, but still there is this misconception, and they're still holding on to things, and it's like this is not what I'm I'm preaching. I want people to get along. Enough people are getting killed like daily. It's it's horrible. It's yeah. it's unbearable. 
So um, it was very important for me to try and get those messages across. However, the second film, I couldn't be so naive and decide on like you know making a film that's going to be controversial. Rather, make a film that has got a comedic angle, yeah. has it touches on a relevant point, and it also has a um, a good message. You know, like um, stand up for yourself. Yeah. So this is the movie that you just shot a few months ago, and you shot it during Ramadan, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Well, so and, and that's probably what you were referring to is how hard it is to shoot. <laughs> yes, it was hard to shoot in Ramadan. It was hot. Um, obviously, we had to adhere to the rules and regulations. Obviously, I can appreciate that. I'm happy to do that. Um, it's also very quiet in Ramadan. Like nothing yeah. really happens. You can shoot during the daytime and not see anybody. It's like it's pretty perfect. Traffic is quiet. Cars can move around. It's like there's no delays in traffic. It's just easy. So, um, yeah, Twisted Blues, the decision to shoot in Ramadan was basically ba- uh, decided upon because we knew we could save money. I didn't want crew who wanted to work for cheap. I wanted a crew that wanted to make a film that was worthy of making. Sure. So it's, um, it, was, it was always my sales pitch. Look, I can get three or four or five of you. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. But do you really want to make the film? Yeah, that's what we Do you really want to make a movie? Do you want to work with, like, you know, international DOPs yeah. and line producers and... Yeah, you don't want a mercenary on, on there just, like, who's like, oh, cool, it's just a way for me to make money and you so, want somebody who cares. And also, I wanted to, like, set a precedent. So, like, we want to make a film that has all my cast have flown in. Yeah. And uh, there's, a, there's an occasional that's a residence from here, but those were needed and I wanted them because I wanted to feel like I'm participating in the country. Yeah. Now, I could have made this film anywhere on the planet. I could have made it in New York for actually a quarter of the price. But I chose to make it here. Why? Because my film industry is struggling? Sure. And nothing's really amounted to anything. No one's really made profit on any feature films and whatever it might be. I don't know what the reasons are, but let's go and make a film that, um, that is funny, engaging, entertaining, and it has a message. And just when I say it has a message... To those aspiring directors out there, never, ever, ever, ever make a film that, that you want to say something. It is the hardest thing in the world to try and get your message across. Yeah. And I think maybe after 20 feature films, then you can start experimenting with that. Yeah. But in this particular one, I think I got lucky. So, so you've shot a movie in South Africa and you shot a movie in Dubai. What is the difference that you found uh, in terms... Obviously, Dubai is much more newer and South Africa is much more established in that. But like, what are the, some of the key differences that you found in, in terms of experience shooting a movie in South Africa and a movie in, in, in UAE? I mean, there's nothing I can really answer to that. I think your question is really... If you had to compare the two countries, you already answered the question. Um, there is no... There, there, it's a young one, of course, and there's yeah. a more established one. Yeah. I think it's. Um, I guess I'm more like in terms of support that you got, like in South Africa, maybe maybe were people more willing to help out on a feature versus Dubai, or was it the other way around? No, I think people were more supportive in Dubai. Actually, wow. to be honest, I was quite impressed. I mean, we got people offering to do the film for free, hmm. and I mean, I've told you, I've got 14, 15 screenplays that I've already written, and I was like, which one do you want to make first? But this is the one I wanted to make first, based on the fact that. It was fun. It was entertaining. It, was, it would make Dubai look amazing. It would make the people that live here give them a chance. You know, a lot of films you'll see, it's, um, they're very drab and morbid and the lame things that happen in life, you know, divorce, anger, violence. It's like, it's, I wanted a film that was fun. People can laugh at you know, mm-hmm. and then learn something from it. So talking about the UAE kind of film industry, since you've been there for 17 years, like, what are some of the challenges that you faced in, in terms, or you think are the most, like filming in UAE or being a filmmaker being in UAE what are some of the challenges that you faced or you think still exist that we need to kind of overcome 
I've just made a feature film about MMA, okay? So I'm in a little bit of an aggressive mood right now. But I really would like to have uh, each really highly qualified director allowed to have a baseball bat that can prevent security guards from stopping them from film shoots because I don't know when they got the power to think that they are the police in this town. I think it's actually a little bit... Um, it's gotten so bad with permissions and locations and the cost of shooting. Yeah. Like, if I had to have paid for all the things, uh, all the locations for my feature film, they would make Dubai look amazing. They would make the city look incredible. They would like that, you know, they would be really beneficial to the country, to the economy. If I had to pay for all my locations, it would have cost more than the film itself. Oh. You know, we were getting like quotations for like 22,000 dirhams for an hour here, 27,000 for this. You can't shoot here. No, 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 no. And it was like, are you kidding me? Like, what, you think that that building is so unbelievably special that it shouldn't be on celluloid and you need to have recoup your costs of building it? Like a few Even months rent in, in the same building. And yeah. it's like, it's not, it's not right. You know, it's like yeah, somebody needs to stand true. up to the film industry. And I know there's little like groups of people trying to fix things, but it's not helping. But we have to do it so graphically that people get this vision embedded in their head. Yeah. Like if you want to build a film industry, you can't expect that you can do it as a one man. The reason why I got people to work on my film at a discounted rate is because I wanted to see who were the ones that believed in it. Because at the end of the day, I don't have to be here. I've been offered jobs all over the world. I can go and make films wherever I want to. But this is my home and I love it. But it breaks my heart to see that the people in power don't really care about making films. They care about selling real estate. And I will say that with absolute confidence because I see it every single day. I see people growing with their screenplays and I see people coming from abroad, around the country, around the world, and I see them like come here to try and be inspired to make a film here. And they end up somehow in my office. I don't know if it's by reputation or by, um, you should go and see Jack. I don't know what it is. But I have people come to me and they're heartbroken. I get laughed at. The first guy who wrote the film, he, he basically, like the first feature film, he went to so many different people and I didn't even give him the time of day to actually res respond to his email. You know, I think that half the reason why I actually responded to him was the reason why he actually trusted me. But then the next step is to like convince somebody to give you money. Yeah. To get to, from that journey to that journey, it's, a, it's hard. But then when you have a country that just really doesn't care about you making films, and especially if you are an expat, then you put yourself in a position where, um, why am I doing this? Like, I can make a huge difference. I can fix the economy. I can change the perception. I can... I can make uh, things better. I can uh, make Dubai look amazing. And that's what I did. I made the city look incredible. The locations, the shots, the city scenes, the cityscapes, the time lapse, the make the country look amazing. Make it yeah. look beautiful. And you know what? Inspire all the nations around you. Because if you cannot, if you're not going to lead by example and always come for second or third best, then you're never going to really aspire to anything great. That's what we need. Yeah. Not, not a country that literally empowers a security guard to beat you up on the street if you are going to pull out a camera. Yeah. Today, for example, like as an example, we were just sitting there hanging out, having a coffee. I had my stills camera with me. The next thing, a guy from YouServe comes up to me and goes, where's your permission paper? And I'm taking a picture of a friend of mine as a like, memorabilia. Where's your permission paper? And he's not even a security guard. He's the cleaning staff. When it gets to that stage, you're going, whoa, 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 whoa. What is, this is unbearable. Yeah, that's very, that's very sucks. So uh, just to kind of uh, wrap up, so what are the plans for the future for you? Like, are you making, I think you're making a new, new feature film? Or? I actually have a meeting tomorrow. Um, it's one of my favorite stories. 
Uh, it's something that I wrote, it took me three months to plan in my head. A month to plan on it and as a mind map. It's basically, um, it was a different choice for me to make it this way. I actually planned it on paper, like pictures and photographs mm. and timelines. I'm very big into structure of films. In fact, Twisted Blues was perfectly structured from where the second act started, where the midpoint was, where the pinches and pulls were. So you prefer that? You prefer kind of having, following that, that, that structure that, that you know works? Because I kind of prefer that as well. Like I, I like the fact that it's like a, the three-act structure or like those act breaks and, and, and all You can't things. just like that. If you don't do that, you're an idiot. Sorry. <laughs> you have to be able to understand what a pinch and pull is, what the midpoints are. You have to understand how many, the, the ratio between, say, a, a, a 14 screenplay, 14-page uh, opening act to a 28-page uh, opening second act or whatever it might be. You have to know this. Yeah. You have to have to equalize. Even if you want to break that rule, you should know that rule well to like be able to break it in the I first place. I mean, I've seen it so many times. Like, you read a person's script and you cannot tell where the second act starts. You cannot tell where the midpoint is. You cannot, and it's like, you won't make this film. And if you do, it's not going to make sense. You're not going to capture an audience. There yeah. are many, many rules in filmmaking. And if you do not follow them, then... And if you think you're some cowboy that you can just make your own story and you think that it will just work, well, I know it doesn't because I tried and I failed. And I'm glad I didn't make those films. And now that I am in a position where I can understand how to captivate an audience and lure them into a story, I keep that in mind when I'm writing it. Because uh, if I cannot keep you watching for 15 minutes, I'm a useless director. Yeah. And this is what you're finding. Films are, people are walking out of films. They're not interested in know, watching yeah. the stories anymore. In okay. fact, you can see it in Vox even, like in the cinemas. You watch that. People like watch 15, 20 minutes in a movie and they leave. Yeah. Because it's not engaging enough. And there are so many rules that everyone's forgotten. Like we've got taught this in, in LA. You got told this and this and this and this and this. And if you do these and these and these, you'll have the audience sit in your chair. But like nobody does those. Like, and you can see the mistakes they're making and unfolding. And you will give the director the benefit of the doubt. But 45 minutes in, you just have about had enough and you have to leave. So, uh, so final words, like what is some advice that you would want to give to somebody who's listening, who wants to make a movie or wants to kind of chart the way that you charted your career? What is some advice that you would like to give to somebody who's... If you finished your studies and you're 21, 22, um, you should consider being a director at the age of 35. If you haven't learned all of the things, the tools of the trade, how to manipulate things, how to make sure everything falls into place, how things operate, what a, what a 1.2 is over a 2.8, what a wide-angle lens is over a... Whatever it is, if you don't have that knowledge, then you can never tell somebody who's experienced what to do. And they will always question your authority, and which will result in things going slowly, which will result in the picture not being good. So there are those very key basic fundamentals. The other thing is, if your story is good, and if your picture is good, and if your sound is good, you're probably going to hold an audience in the room. If any one of those fails, I swear to God, no one will sit to that movie. And they will spread rumors around town saying it's a terrible story. So these are just the basics. When you write a film, do not plagiarize somebody else's film because someone else is going to pick up on that. They're going to learn that, oh, I saw that in this movie. And even like down to camera work, don't copy somebody else's camera work. It doesn't actually make any sense. Unless you're going for the regular rules of cinematography and framing, then do that. But if you want to blatantly try and copy somebody's work and then fail at that, you're going to lose your credibility like in a millisecond. And no one's going to take you seriously. 
and um, yeah, be very prepared when you come on set. More so that you're not even interested in having your first coffee. You're not even interested in like actually just like meeting the client. You just want to get started. The person that has the most amount of energy is the one that's probably going to inspire the rest. You've heard of uh, the art of projection. You walk in a room and you light it up, people do whatever you want them to do. But it's not something you can learn, it's something that you have to understand. And if you understand that, you have to be able to control it. And the other thing that I find very, very important is, you know, like everybody is on a journey, their own journey. And if you're in a position of being a director, then you have to respect that they are probably there for the money. They're probably there because they have nothing else to do. They're probably there because they haven't got any bookings that month. They're probably there because they like making movies. But if you, fear, if you see what I've been seeing recently, I ask people, work on my film for free. And like, how many people work on short films for free? How many people work on other films and movies for free? And I was expecting them all to say no. I had people saying, pay me $1,000, I'll do this for you. I'm like, what? Uh, no, I can give you $10,000. I can give you $20,000. No, a thousand's fine. I already want to make your film. And then when you start to see that, and then it starts to knock on effect on everybody else, my makeup artist... Okay, Marcia, bless her, she was amazing. She brings over somebody from Sao Paulo who's an incredible stunt, coordinator, uh, stunt makeup artist. He didn't want any money. He just wanted a place to put his head and be a part of the film. Do you know that uh, my sound composer did scenes on uh, Planet of the Apes, the yeah. new one? Nice. He sent me his work, his score, his scene that he worked on. And I'm like, oh my God, are you serious? This is amazing. Like, you want to work on my film? He goes, Jack, I've been following your career since Boarding on Bad Behavior. I have contacted you three months ago. You probably don't remember replying to me. And he goes, I, I keep watching Twisted Blues. I keep watching your photographs. I keep looking at your showreels. And he goes, like, I want to help you. And I'm like, but you worked on Planet of the Apes. Like, why would you even care about my story? And he goes, just based on the pictures I'm seeing and the hype around it, like, but you live in L.A. And he goes, Jack, it's like the world is very small now. And when I told him, I only have this much money to make the, the sound score, he goes, done. Can I start tomorrow? Meanwhile, the guy doesn't need my money. He just needs a commitment from me to say that I will give him the money. And that's it. He will make my film. He even did some test scenes for me. And I was like, you composed that whole scene for me? He goes, yeah, because I really want to make a film. Yeah. So could you imagine, like, most of the locations I paid for, for nothing. And how did I do that? I built relationships. So when it comes to making a film and you start to get the support of people, like jumping up out of the woodwork, like, no, 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 my art director did the whole film for free. Art director, you know how expensive they are on his film set? Yeah. For free. He was there before me and he left after me. That man deserves a medal. Yeah. And then the thing is that those people, they will come with me. They will always go with me on my next film. They will always be a part of my next story. Because you want to know why? They didn't complain. And they worked harder than everybody else. And even though they took less than what they would have taken in, in less than five days of work, it didn't matter. They, I respect them for that. And I appreciate it. Like, even if we, the film makes money, which we think it should, we're going to be in a position where, like, I don't want that money. Give it to the people that looked after me. And the only, thing is, the only reason why I want this film to finish so quickly is because I want to make my next one. Because until I can finish my three film slate, I'm never going to be a good director. I'm going to be a mediocre director until I've actually finished my journey. And if you haven't made three feature films, you're not a director. 
Right now, I'm a technical director. I'm a writer. I'm a bit of jack of all trades. No jokes. But I learn every single day like anybody else. And in my career, to be saying that <laughs> and to be humble enough to say that, yeah. that must mean something. Yeah. Because I'm not joking. This is one of the hardest jobs in the world. Yeah. And if I told you it was one of the loneliest, it's unbearable. Yeah, you yeah. get to meet incredible people, though. But Yeah, it is. It's pretty lonely. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Jack, man. Thanks. I'm looking forward to Twisted Blues and, uh, and your next feature film. Thank you, buddy. So there you have it. That was our conversation with Jack Mulder. If you want to hear more episodes of the podcast, you can definitely go to festivalandfilm.com or uh, just find your favorite podcast app, search festivalandfilm.com and you'll be able to see uh, the episodes that we've already done. If you want to hear more episodes, definitely follow or subscribe as well. And uh, there's some really, really interesting people that have lined up in terms of future episodes. So definitely keep an eye out on that. And yeah, that's pretty much it. Thank you once again to uh, Kane Rodriguez for making this episode sound as good as it does. And uh, yeah, see you on the other side.